All right, any announcements or updates on uh, prayer requests this morning? All right, not seeing anybody. Everybody's trickling in here. We'll go ahead and open off uh, class with a word of prayer. Y'all bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather together again this morning, to be able to open up your word and study from it and be able to hopefully be challenged as Christians to continue this fight that we are fighting against all the spiritual things that flood against us each and every day. We ask that you please be with us through the study, be with me to help me to remember the things that I've studied and prepared, and God, be with all of us as Christians and as members of the church that we will be encouraged to know that we are fighting with you as our commander, and we will be able to have that victory in the end if we stay true, faithful, and obedient to you. God, we know there are so many today that are dealing with sicknesses. Uh, we ask that you please be with them, especially those dealing with the physical ailments that can be healed. We ask you be with the doctors and, and the nurses and then all those that are tending to those that are sick, that they may be able to regain their health. God, especially we pray for those that are part of our family here at Dalreda, that you will help us to reach out to those who are in need of encouragement and strength, and that we will be able to help restore them as they can. God, as we think about this uh, in the coming month, as we deal with the restoring uh, our brethren, we ask that you help us to reach out to those that we don't see being here or being faithful any longer. We ask that you help us to encourage them and to uplift them and, and help them to get back into this, this battle against Satan and against all the evils that we see in this world. We ask that you uh, give us the courage to speak up and to reach out and to be able to do what we can as your family for those who are lost and those who are um, in need of encouragement. God, we are most of all thankful for Jesus, and we're thankful for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and it's through his name we offer all these things in prayer. Amen. I didn't quite get done with the lesson on God, our commander-in-chief, last week, so as I was preparing, I decided I'm going to go, go ahead and continue that lesson just because I don't want to leave some of these things unsaid. I thought they were uh, excellent points that I had prepared, and uh, I hate to leave them unsaid. You know how that is, Jim? You get, get, get to a point, you're like, well, I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. Uh, my introduction last week, unfortunately, drug out way too long, and uh, so I did not get to some of these points. So I want to get into some of these hopefully this morning. And if we can go ahead and transition into the next lesson, we will uh, and begin our, our thoughts and discussions on Satan. We ended last week talking about these characteristics of our commander in chief and answering the question of who is our commander in chief. And we looked at the fact that God is spiritual. God is powerful. He's all powerful. God is all knowing. God is all present and God is all loving. Look at some of these basic, integral um, characteristics of who God is. Because as our commander-in-chief, the realization of who we are following in the battle is going to give us a greater realization of what can be accomplished. It's going to give us that security and confidence so that when we are in the midst of battle, that we are not wavering because we can fully rely upon our commander-in-chief to lead us. And it's important as we kind of think through uh, spiritual warfare, we begin at the top and we kind of go down because that structure is important for our confidence and our stability and our assurance ultimately in the end that we will have victory in battle. We'll get to that in the end that, that God will be victorious. The Bible is very clear on that, that we, if we are with God, with our commander in chief through the struggles, through the battles, 
maybe we, we lose some battles, but ultimately the war will be won by God. And our spiritual war will be victorious if we stay faithful and true to the commander-in-chief. And so as we, we finish those, we, we dealt with this final characteristics of God of being all-loving. And the fact that although he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all those things that we really, uh, really attribute to God, that they, the concept of God being all-loving kind of brings in a whole emotional appeal to our confidence in our commander-in-chief because it lets us know that it's not just the actions but it's almost that desire and that connection that he has with us. That when we think about what love is, that we are really truly thinking about God. He is the very definition of what love is. If you want to know what love is, was that song, I Want to Know What Love Is by, was it Air Supply? I don't remember who it was, but if you really want to know what love is, you look at God because that's what God is. God is all loving. In 1 John chapter 4, Verse 8, it says there the very definition of God uh, is love. So if you were wanting to put God equals love in your Bibles right there, it's a, a great equation because that's exactly what, it, uh, what God is. is all loving. God is comprised by love. We know that by what he has done for us. We see it exemplified in his sacrifices, especially the sacrifice of his only son, right? John 3, 16, probably the most quoted verse of all the Bible. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? The very basic principle there is that God loved us to the fullest extent that he gave up his most cherished person for you. And you look at other passages and, and, and thinking about the love of, of God, like Romans chapter 8, that that God loved us. He showed us that love that even while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And the idea there is that God loved us in the thick and the thin, whether we are following Him or not following Him. God's love never fails. You know, all those things you see in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love is, that's God. Those characteristics, can you can check them off. God, God never fails. God loves us. And because of that, God is all-loving. So that kind of begs the question with respect to this study on the commander-in-chief. Why or how? Let's go, let's go, how should we serve him? How? Um, is God being our commander-in-chief in the midst of this spiritual war that we have, uh, the, the question for us is being subservient to him and, and fighting there in the midst of battle with this commander-in-chief is how are we to serve him as our commander-in-chief? Well, there's a couple of reasons and a couple of ways that I wanted to point out to you. And first and foremost, we should recognize his authority. We should recognize his authority. There is a reason why God tells children to honor your parents. There's a reason. Ephesians chapter 4, right? Talk about Paul telling them to, to obey your parents, to honor your parents, to respect your parents, to follow your parents. Those concepts are all kind of ingrained there in that approach that, that Paul has there speaking to the families. And we've had multiple family lessons back in the month of February where it was underscored the fact that children are to obey and to honor and to respect their parents. Why? Because they have the authority. They have the authority. If I want Marley to clean her room, and I tell her to clean her room, she should clean her room because her father said so. 
pure and simple. Not, not really because Marley felt like doing it, right, Wayne? We all know 10-year-olds probably aren't going to feel like doing things all the time. Uh, you know, but you got that authority principle there in place and structured in the home. It's really no different with regard to God. And the idea that, that God's authority is there, the problem usually comes in with us recognizing that he has that authority, to respecting and honoring that man or the, the being, being God, that has the authority. And so one of the, the, the primary, the basic, intrinsic ways that we can serve our God, our commander-in-chief, is to recognize that he has that authority. And I will tell you, if we don't recognize it, now, we will recognize it later. So we really get to decide, Burl, on our terms, whether we're going to do it now or we're going to be able to do it on God's terms later, right? Because he's going to make sure that his authority is established. He's going to make sure that his authority is followed one way or another. And as those who are on the battlefield with God, as those of us who are striving in this spiritual battle to seek and to serve after this commander-in-chief as he directs and instructs us, one of the best and most primary ways we can do that is to recognize his authority because it's going to be easier at that point in time to follow him off in the battle because we're going to be showing our submissive nature to him and his commands. Think, think about in some of the examples we have in the, the Bible about this. Shortly after... Daniel and his friends were saved after the fiery furnace. Do you remember what King Nebuchadnezzar said there? You know, I mean, contextually, remember the fiery furnace. What was that all about? It was about idol worship, right? I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar had built this monstrosity that everyone was supposed to be bowing down to and worshiping and honoring and, and praising. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow. We said, we will not serve your God. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace. It was all about recognizing the authority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had recognized the authority. They had already made that decision themselves to follow after the authority of God. But King Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite get it. He didn't quite understand it. And you see there at the end of chapter 3, around uh, verse 29, it said there, King Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed at the end, Whenever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from that fiery furnace, when they were brought out and not one bit of smoke, not one bit of char was upon their bodies, they had not been scathed at all. King Nebuchadnezzar made a proclamation there that I think rings true and shows you exactly what he finally came to the realization of. He said there, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you should do nothing against them, no, do nothing against their God. And he finally had a recognition. It's very interesting, though, you can continue that story. And you go on into chapter 4. And there really ultimately was not a full recognition by Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if it's because of his earthly wealth and the, the, the claim and adoration that he had obtained there on this earth. But there was not a full recognition until the end of chapter 4 with regard to what God's power was and what authority God had. It took a dream, ultimately and the transformation of this mighty king into a beast of the field to really finally bring King Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. That realization, that recognition of what real authority was. And that was with God. And you see at the end of chapter 4, really throughout the, the whole chapter 4 in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar finally realized the complete sovereignty of God. 
The earthly king didn't understand that his power, that his authority had come from God. He did not fully recognize who he should have been serving at that point in time until he recognized it through those experiential things. Think about the establishment of the authority of God throughout God's word. Whenever you think about the recognition, the realization that God is ultimately the supreme uh, being, that he and he alone should be worshipped, that he and he alone should be served, you see it throughout the scriptures, don't you? I mean, think back to the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. It was his authority that was able to cast out Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And they realized that ultimately they were forced to realize it when they were evicted. You see it later on throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the flood where he had the power, power and the majesty to be able to destroy the whole world by water, saving only eight souls within the ark. His authority was established. His authority should be followed. And ultimately, Noah and his family were the only ones who recognized that authority and followed after it. Other examples throughout time uh, would go on to say the, the, the plagues and the exodus. What was the point of the plagues? When you think back to it, God could have miraculously just let the people go, right? I mean, there would have been no problem there with regard to God having the power and the ability to just let the people go. So why have so many plagues upon the Egyptians? Well, there's one reason, I believe, and one reason alone, and that's to establish to them, not just the Egyptians, but them also being the Israelites, the fact that God had the authority. And so those things were done to be able to prescribe to them the guidelines that they should act upon and underneath. And those are the guidelines prescribed by God and God alone because he is the one with the authority. Whether it's a miracle or whether it's uh, some other type of situation that you read out in scriptures, what you see is the, the root of all of those things is to establish the authority of God. We had a study of the miracles several quarters ago, and Mike even talked about it on Wednesday night, talking about the miracles. What was the point of the miracles in the New Testament? What was the point? Was it just to heal the sick and cause the, the blind to see? Was it just to allow the, the lame to walk again? Well, those are good byproducts of the miracles. There's nothing wrong with it, and obviously it showed compassion to humanity, but was that really the goal and the purpose of the miracles? No. The goal and the purpose of the miracles was to establish that authority was found only in God. And for the people to be able to look at that and to be able to understand that that's where the authority comes from. And that because the authority comes from God, that the people should listen to what was being said. That's why you see, when you deal with that, why do miracles not exist today? Why, why is there no need for miracles today? And the arguments go, and I think biblically so, when you look at it, the perfect has come, perfect being the Bible. We've got the evidence we need right here for the authority and the evidence and proof to listen to what it is. We don't necessarily have to have that authority be, being continuously established any longer. It's not necessary anymore. God has established his authority, and once he established that authority, uh, there's no need to continue doing it. Miracles have ceased. Those miracles that we have, because the purpose has ceased. His authority has been made plain and simple. All we got to do is follow it. So what is one of the things that we can do with regard to serving God? Well, the biggest thing we can do is recognize that God and God alone is the one that has the authority. As we fight the spiritual war, we cannot disregard 
turn our backs on or ignore the authority of God. We don't have a choice or an option there. Our commander-in-chief has all of that authority uh, bestowed upon him. It is laid upon his shoulders. It is laid upon him and his powers alone. We cannot take it away from him. But we must recognize who has the authority. Just like in our homes, we expect our children to recognize the parents have the authority. In the church, God wants us to understand and recognize that the elders have the authority in the church to be able to lead the church as they see fit according to God's scriptures. Ultimately, we understand that the authority lies upon God. God is the ultimate source of authority. And just as we have seen throughout scriptures and as we've talked about different examples, no other authority can replace God. No other person can take that place or substitute for what God has done. No other authority can dictate what action or direction that we take in the battle against Satan and all the other evils of this world, those things which are not of this world, those spiritual things, there's only one commander-in-chief that has the authority to direct our actions, and that's God. And by recognizing that authority, we understand that that command has force behind it. Because with authority comes the power. With authority comes the influence. With the authority comes the leadership that's necessary for us to be able to be successful ultimately in any type of war. In this case, these battles that we wage against those things that are not of this world, those things which are spiritual uh, nature, those things which confront us on multiple sides, being those sinful desires, the lust of the flesh, those things you cannot necessarily touch, feel, or taste, those things which are of spiritual nature, God has given us the uh, understanding that He can lead us as we struggle through all these things once we accept His authority. Only when we truly recognize God's authority can we adequately fight our battles against Satan's scheme. Next, what, how else could we serve? How else should we serve? Well, not only should we recognize His authority, but because we recognize His authority, we should also obey His commands. You know, we, we don't have a choice. And I think it's interesting when you think about uh, being involved in any of the armed services. They don't have a choice of whether they follow a command or not. In fact, if you don't follow a command, it's not, it, it's, it could be just insubordination, I guess, with regard to what they have not done according to the commandment of their superior officer. But it could also be all the way to the point of being treason. A capital crime punishable by death because you have failed to follow your commander's directions. You see, the reason why that is punishable by death, the reason why that is a problem is because, one, they have the authority, and two, they have commanded it to be done, and you have failed to follow their directives. Just like in our armed forces and our armed services that we think about, our commander-in-chief is very much similar to that. God has the authority, and then when God commands and instructs us to do things, we must follow his commands. We don't get to inject our opinions or our personal preferences in there to try to counteract uh, those things which God has wanted us to do. That's where denominations come into so many different problems with regard to their relationships and how they have tried to make their preference acceptable 
And that's because they have disregarded what God has said for them to do. Did I do something or did y'all do something? Okay. Um, so the idea of obeying his commandments is integral for us to be able to go forward in this battle, to be a part of this spiritual war. And just as no soldier can survive without following the orders of their commanding officer, no Christian is going to be ultimately surviving in the end if they do not obey the directives of their commanding officer, in this case being God. I mean, that, that's a, a very good point, Now, When you think about the Old Testament, there are a lot of very strict guidelines that are there prescribed in the old law. I uh, can't get into all of them necessarily, but the idea of disobeying your parents, you can be put to death, you can be stoned for it. Uh, there are a lot of capital crimes back then that we would think nowadays in this postmodern world, I cannot believe that we would put someone to death for that. But when you go back and look at the rationale and the realization, it is because we are trying to train and to make people understand that there is one commander. So whether it's in our homes or whether it's at school or whether it's at work, the problem that we have in our social world today is the problem we have lost the recognition of authority. And therefore, when we lose the recognition of authority, we also lose the obedient nature because you don't recognize. You think, I can do whatever I want to do in life. There are no repercussions because, you know, I... I they don't have a say-so over me. I don't care if they are my boss. I, I can choose what I want to do. And so you have that mindset ingrained in them. And you're right. The Old Testament showed us a, a very basic example. And I think the best example of why it's so important in our homes today. And I think we've hit on it multiple different lessons talking about the importance of a home. That's where it all begins. Our culture struggles today because a lot of men are absent from the home. We have a lot of fatherless homes Single parent, a lot of single mothers, if you look statistically out there, there's a lot of single parent homes. Usually it's the mother taking care of the children. I'm not saying always because there's, there's always good exceptions. But generally speaking, that's what you have. So you have the absence of a man who should be teaching the children what it means to be a father. And what's important of that? In the spiritual sense, the, the importance is when they see your father at home, that will lay the groundwork of how they see their father who is in heaven. It's very interesting when you look at the studies there. Uh, it's a very sobering thought that I have thought of as a father that the way that I parent and the way that I do things toward my, my two daughters will probably give them a perception of God in some way, form, or fashion because God is our Father in heaven. And so ultimately that lays that groundwork for the authoritative principle and the idea of what happens when you don't obey, what happens, uh, why should you obey, all those kind of groundwork is laid in the home, and unfortunately, that's done away with. You're right. Um, when you think about the reasoning behind that, the reasoning is, is so that the children will understand the authority principle. And because they understand that authority principle, that the commandments that are then said, those orders, those directives given, will be respected and followed because they already understand authority. And you don't always have that. And you don't have that really... Uh, sometimes in this world around us, spiritually speaking. What happens when you don't recognize the authority of God? 
Well, spiritually speaking, it affects your life because then you have no groundwork. You have no parameters in which to operate in your life. If you don't respect the authority of God, obedience really doesn't even factor into the equation at that point because you have no respect of authority. If you have no respect of authority, you throw out all those uh, directives out the window. And you see that in our modern world, spiritually speaking. You see how you have these churches who get into touchy-feely situations because they feel as though the, the commandments and the outlines that are prescribed in, by God and His Word really aren't to be taken that seriously. They have absconded the authority principle and because of that fail to follow the obedience principle. And so you see the Im impact that, that can have with regard to it. Think about Saul real quickly. A good example there in 1 Samuel chapter 15 of Saul. What happened with Saul? What brought about his downfall? Remember a king by the name of Agag. Unfortunately, Paul, or Saul, I mean, gagged on King Agag in his spiritual life. God told him to go and destroy, utterly destroy. By the way, that, that word is used so many times in the Old Testament when God directs his people to go out and conquer people. He tells them to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what did he do instead? Well, he, he preserved, he, uh, he uh, kept King Agag alive. He spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the lambs and all some other things that were good, brought them back to the camp, and then Samuel approached to him after that and pretty much said, do I hear the lowing of sheep? A recognition there that Saul had not done what God wanted. Now again, Saul had conquered nation after nation. In this case, he killed almost every one of the Amalekites. But God had instructed and had commanded him to utterly destroy them, to annihilate them, whatever version you got might, might say. That means to wipe them from the face of the earth. And because Saul failed to do that, Saul ultimately not only lost favor with God, but lost his own kingdom. God expects obedience. Not half-hearted obedience, not halfway obedience. He expects complete and full obedience of those things which God has ordered and commanded. Saul failed to follow the orders of his commander, the Lord God, and instead he attempted to justify his disobedience by saying that he was doing something good, that he had, he, I kept the spoils to sacrifice to you, God. I kept the very best of those things to sacrifice them to you. God didn't want that sacrifice. That's not what God asked for. That's not what God commanded him to do. Regardless of the motive of Saul, regardless of how, how good it might have been to, to offer all those things to God in the sacrifice, God did not want it. God expected full and complete obedience. He missed a very basic concept of spiritual warfare here, Saul did. Obedience of our commander-in-chief is paramount to any other option. Ultimately, Samuel rebuked Paul. I mean, Saul. I don't know why I keep saying Paul. Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, and he said there, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's a pretty sober thought, isn't it? 
few things. Saul did a lot of good things. A few things that he in his own mind thought were a good idea. He thought, Wayne, I think God might like this. I like it. I like the idea of coming back and sacrificing to God. I want to make this big altar and I want to sacrifice all these things so it will be a sweet, fragrant aroma to God after this war, this battle that he has allowed us to be victorious. I think it will be great. God said, it's not great, Saul. It's not. It's sin. What you have done is a rejection of me. And so what we see throughout the scriptures is that when you disobey God, you reject God. When you don't follow those things which God wants you to do in your life, you reject the authority of the one who created you. What can we do to serve our commander-in-chief? We should obey his commands. Make sure we don't compromise. Those other compromises you see throughout Scripture. Think about the battle of Ai there in the book of Joshua. You think of some other ones where you know, some people thought they had a better idea, and so they did something that brought sin upon the whole camp, and it called utter destruction and caused problems for them time and time again. The reason being, they did not obey God. They did not obey those things which God has wanted and God has commanded. Our spiritual battle is dependent on our obedience to God. He is our commanding officer. We can't forsake his commands. We cannot go about and do things that we think are better. We cannot think that we know better than he knows. But by obeying his orders, accomplishing his goals, following after his plans, we're not just successful soldiers, but we are profitable soldiers of God. And we're worthy of fighting underneath his command. Real quickly here, a couple more. We should glorify his name. How else can we serve? And how else can we uh, recognize and, and bring glory to our commander-in-chief? We should glorify his name. God deserves to be praised and magnified for all that he is and, and all that he's done for man. We glorify and praise our commander-in-chief with both actions and words. Think about that. On the battlefield, your commander-in-chief is going to require certain things, certain things to do. And then also what you say is going to be reflective upon your commander as well. And our actions speak volumes about whether we glorify God or not. We can walk in the Lord's truth and show our faith by our obedience, by keeping his commandments. We also show that we love him. We see that John 14, verse 15, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. We love God. We're going to obey him. That is indicative and reflective upon the actions that we take, those choices that we make. And it's not just the idea that we obey him. But by obeying him, we actually glorify him. We uplift him. We let him know that because we recognize his authority, we are submitting to that authority and we are doing things that he wants, that he desires, and that he commands. Psalms chapter 8, 86, verses 11 through 13 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever for your loving kindness toward me is great and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. A recognition of what God is to us is glorifying him through our actions. By submitting to him, by honoring him, by obeying him, we glorify God by the things that we do. But God also wants us to glorify him by the ways that we talk, those words that we use, and 
although our obedience shows our love to God, we can also praise God by our words. We can sing praises to God uh, in song. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, we can lift our voice to praise all the wonderful works of God as Psalms 68, verse 8, and Luke 19, 37 talks about recognizing but also glorifying Him with our words by the things that we say, not just by the things that we do. Ultimately, you know, we, we hear the concept a lot of times that it means a little bit more of, you know, what we do than what we say. You know, because people look at our examples to see if we're hypocritical or not. Well, we can't place too much importance just on those things that we do. Because we are commanded, we are instructed, we are encouraged to stand up and speak. Whether it's teaching the Word of God to the Bahamas, which our mission group came back safely, thankfully, last I guess early this morning. I don't know what time y'all got in, but uh, they came back. They've been teaching and they've been talking. They have been discussing God's word on a daily basis with those in the Bahamian uh, island. And so you, you hear them, you'll hear them, hopefully we'll hear some good reports of what they were able to experience and go through and do because the words that they spoke, it's not just a going, but it's a going and a saying. And so we are instructed to go and to teach that's why that conjunctive word there is and. It's not just one or the other, Wayne. It's not just go or teach. It's to go and teach. And so our words and our actions go together. And by going together, they fitly allow us to glorify and bring praise to our commander. And ultimately, what, how else should we serve? We should serve him to the death. Revelation 2.10 talks about serving God until we die. That those who persevere until the end, we'll obtain that crown of righteousness in the end when we are faithful. You know what? Unlike military service in this country, that's voluntary uh, right now. I guess we haven't had a draft in many, many years, right? World War II, I believe, is the last time there was any draft invoked. Or was it Vietnam? I guess Vietnam, technically. Um, anyways, you got the, the draft. That, that's there in place. Obviously, that could always occur. But that's just not the way it operates, right? It's a voluntary thing. And in fact, you can re-up. Uh, after doing so many years that you have committed to the armed services, you know, you have an ability to either uh, continue in your service to your country or you can get out of that service and go ahead and go into maybe civilian lifestyle. You know, uh, um, Scott retired um, after becoming a lieutenant. You know, he said, I'm going to retire. I've, I've reached retirement with regard, put my years of service in. I'm going to take care of my family a different way. He got out of the armed forces. Guess what, though? When it comes to your service in the spiritual warfare, when it comes to your service and your abilities uh, with regard to God's fight, in the spiritual war that we have, there is no retirement. Sorry. There is no way that you can say, well, I'm good for five years, and after I put my five years in, I'm good, I'm going to check out, I'm going to do something else. God expects us to be in for life. When we make that commitment to Him to be a part of His body, when we are part of His family, we make that commitment to follow and do those things for the remainder of our life. There is no exit strategy. There is no way to get out unless we want to get on the opposing side, I assume. If you want to make that choice, that's on, up to you. But God expects it to be for life. We should follow him till the death. You know, I think about some of these great movies that you see of these leaders, you know, like Braveheart, where you get the, the guy out there, you know, and he's out there and, you know, you won't take our freedom. You know, they just run into the battle, you know, and they're in the lead. They're in, you know, they're leading in the battle, man. That's when you're going to get up and just, just clap and just get behind me like, I'm with him, you know. You're, 
They're leading that battle. They're, they're out in front of it fighting, but it's not just a fight, and then they're going to go home for the night. They're in it to win it. They're in it to fight to the death to the point where they are giving up everything to be able to pursue those things which they deem as important, those things which they deem as being the most specific that would have the impact on their lives forever. But they're all in. And that's what God expects us to understand in our lives and how we can serve the commander-in-chief. How we can serve our God is not just to recognize his authority, but recognize that when we are in it, we are in it to win it until the end of it. You know, when we serve God until our death, the, the transition, the translation of that really is very similar to what Brother Burrell just pointed out is we obtain an honor after our death that is the greatest honor ever. And that honor is that we have that crown of righteousness that Revelations 2.10 talks about, that when we have served God to our death, when we have shown Him our faithful dedication that we obtain an award and a reward in the end that is incomparable to anything else. How can we serve God? It's not just recognizing His authority. It's not just obeying His commandments. It's not just glorifying Him through our actions and our words. But it's the idea that that never ends. And we serve to the death. We may have to give up everything, including our own lives, if we are going to faithfully serve our commander-in-chief. Now, how many of us really think about that as a component of our spiritual warfare? That's a, Obviously, it has some physical implications there, but there are some spiritual implications there as well. The idea of compromising our morality or compromising our beliefs or compromising those things that God commands in our lives. That it may cause, yes, a physical impact on us, but if we don't make those choices and really fighting until the death physically speaking, that could ultimately affect our spiritual lives. And if we don't make those choices here and now, we won't be able to make them then and after. It'll be too late. It'll be way too late. God expects us, and we should understand, we should acknowledge that part of our service, it's a lifetime of service. I, I get on my soapbox sometimes because I truly believe that there are some older Christians that believe they've put their time in sometimes and they think that they are retired to the point of service sometimes. And I'm not trying to, to poke at you as being older people in here or not, but if you have that mentality, you need to rethink that mentality. Just because your children are no longer in the education system doesn't mean you don't have a choice or don't need to be stepping up to teach children because your service does not end. If you have a talent to be able to teach, you should be teaching. You should be doing what you can to encourage your brethren because you cannot retire from serving God. I understand it may not be as easy as it may used to have been, right? Well, it's not easy to get out of bed sometimes, is it? 
Age takes its toll on us. The physical conditions take tolls on us. But we've got to understand that our service to God does not end just because our bodies become frailer, because our bodies become a little sicker, or maybe just because we have grown a little older. But we've got to serve God up until the point that we die. Brother Verl. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the oldest elder probably served the last of his life in the church of Ephesus. John. That's right. You know, it's it it bothers me. And again, I'm a younger guy, I know, and but the older generations should be embracing that as a way to teach and to preach and to ingratiate and to admonish the younger generation. And unfortunately, sometimes I see it lacking. I think that they think, well, we've been there, we put our time in. I've heard this before, by the way. I'm not just saying this, just speculating. But I've heard it from individuals saying, well, you know, I put my time in when my kids were younger, so now I'm just kind of, you know, taking a break and doing other things. And that's okay, I guess, if you're still doing things for the Lord. I'm not necessarily wanting to cast dispersion on you for maybe changing what your focus is and what your service is. But your service cannot end. We've got to constantly seek and to strive and to to search for ways that we can serve in whatever status we're in. We can't ever say, well, you know, I'm here on Sundays and Wednesdays. That's all I can do now. Maybe that's the case. And if it is, I'll leave that up to you. But what I want to encourage us all to remember is this, that we serve our commander in chief by recognizing and realizing every single day of our life that we are to serve him until we breathe our last. There are times that I am completely encouraged because there are some people who can't do anything more than come to church services. I understand that. And they they do everything they can just to get out of bed and come to worship God with a family of believers here at Delray, and I love it. And I will tell you that in the times past, that has been one of the greatest encouragements to me personally. Because it encourages me to realize these people are fighting to the, to the death to do what God wants them to do. And that's the mentality that we have got to have. And that we have got to fight each and every day, every single waking moment, every breathable moment of time to be able to fight with God against those things which are evil and negative in this world. Miss now. It is. That's right. You know, prayer warriors that are out there who can't do anything else probably give us more encouragement than we ever know. And think about this too. You know, those people who write just little encouragement notes and put them in the mail, you know, because they can't get out and do what they want to. Maybe they can't even talk on the phone for long periods of time anymore. Those encouraging notes help build up the brethren. That's what Hebrews 10 is talking about there, is edifying and building up the brethren so that we are united, that we continue to encourage one another until that day comes. And we've got to continue to think, what can we do to continue our service? Because not only are we continuing our service to one another, but ultimately by continuing our service to one another, we're continuing our service to God. And we understand that and realize that as we go on. Now, real quickly, as I obviously I didn't get done through this lesson again, but real quick, I want to get this so I can start the next lesson next time. 
Where do we get our directives from? Our commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief. We talked about his authority. We talked about the fact that he uh, should be obeyed. He should be followed. So where do we get the directives? God's not speaking to me directly today. God is not giving me a direct revelation like he may have to Samuel in the Old Testament or as he did in the New Testament when Paul was on the road to, uh, you know, as he was, you know, he doesn't do that today. God does not directly reveal those things to us individually today. So how does he do it? Well, he does it um, through his word. We, he does it through his word. The Lord doesn't uh, leave us unknowing in battle. He doesn't lead us with a point of, of where do we go and what do we do. God's word has become our spiritual rules of engagement, so to speak, as you think about what we are confronting. That's the whole purpose of this study is to look at what are we fighting and how can we fight. And God has revealed those things to us in his word. We must study them. We cannot do this by osmosis. Don't sleep on your Bibles, you know, thinking that you're going to soak in the words tonight. Okay, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I wish it would. I wish it would miraculously just soak into my head. I can memorize every scripture. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It doesn't happen that way. The only way we're going to know what the directives of God are throughout our spiritual battle and this spiritual fight is to study, to know what we're supposed to do and have this realization like Psalms 119 talks about. We know this word, uh, this, this scripture, Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We've got to realize that the directives from God are the ones that should guide us that should give us the direction that we should fight and those things which we should do to be able to stand up against those wiles of Satan and those things that are thrown at us on a daily basis trying to pull us down and make us where we are no longer fighting alongside of God. Next week, we'll talk about Satan. Um, who's the enemy of the camp? There's one primary enemy, and we're going to be talking about him and, and what we can make sure and acknowledge and know about him so we can fight better as we move forward in our fight. Thank you for your kind attention and your comments.